Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come and approach your holy word once again. So grateful to you that, uh, Father, different than in so many places of the world, we can actually open up your word and learn about your great character and be instructed and confronted, Lord, concerning our sin, that we might pursue holiness in the fear of God. I pray that, Lord, we may respond with that kind of an attitude this morning. Lord, we are mindful that your word is going forth, not just in this pulpit today and in different Sunday schools and children and youth, but, Father, in many different places of the world as well, including the Philippines. We thank you for our team who is in the Philippines right now with Pastor Tim Carnes and others who are serving there. And Father, I pray that you might bring about a great encouragement uh, in that country through the preaching and teaching of your word. Father, I pray that you would continue to sustain our team as they spread your word, as they serve you faithfully there with the other brethren. Father, I pray also for our ladies, many of our ladies who are gone uh, on the ladies' retreat, that as your word goes forth this morning, that um, and they speak about your great character as our Heavenly Father, I pray that you may continue to encourage the ladies that they would come back just uh, uh, revitalized, that they would come back encouraged, that they would continue to draw closer together, and more importantly to you through your word, and that they might spur one another to love and good deeds. We ask you all of these things, Lord, and pray that this time would be for your honor and for your glory, for the exaltation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, as you know, many of our ladies are actually uh, gone this morning uh, to the women's retreat. So I've decided not to begin our series on the Calvary Distinctives uh, this morning. I kind of pulled an audible uh, change of play and plan a few days ago, and the elders were okay with me doing that. So we will begin our uh, series on the Calvary Distinctives next uh, Sunday morning. Uh, but this morning, I do want to look at God's Word and address a topic that has been uh, on my heart just for my own personal devotion before the Lord a lot lately. And that is the topic of, of faith. Something, uh, as you know, so key for the life of the believer. So if you have your Bibles, turn them to the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk, which is the fifth to last book of the Old Testament, in case you've not turned there for a while. The book of Habakkuk. And I want to want us to look at the life of this prophet uh, Habakkuk, and we have some wonderful lessons that we can learn from his life, so turn there. You know, I've shared with you in the past that uh, for a number of years, uh, the Lord granted me the privilege of working with a ministry where I had the opportunity, as many of you have as well, to travel to other countries of the world, and very quickly... Uh, if you traveled around to places like Southeast Asia or Africa or Latin America, uh, you realize that things are quite different in other countries than in America. Uh, here in America, we take many things for granted. I'm sure you would agree. Uh, things that are basic necessities of life, like shelter and food and water and education and even just having a job, um, opportunities that we have and freedoms that we have in this country, uh, there are many, many things that we take for granted, but they're simply not, in many countries of the world, things that, that are automatic. And um, these are all things, food and shelter and water and education and jobs, that every American is given the right to have, um, for the most part, here in this country. And we're very, very grateful for that. But in other countries, I mean, people uh, are hungry. There's no water. There's no shelter. There is violence uh, everywhere. People are starving. There's political upheaval um, in many countries that we hear about in the news and we've been exposed to. Um, the family infrastructure, if you think it's bad here in America, look around and travel around. Family infrastructure is, is terrible in other countries as well. Uh, there is no father, no mother, perhaps no parents exist in a child's life at all. Children have to fend for themselves. Um, governments, if you think our government is corrupt, um, secretly, if that, then look around and you'll find that in many places of the world, governments are greedy, covetous, oppressive, power-hungry. 
And, you know, in all of my travels, I would often come back from those trips and just scratch my head and wonder why certain things were the way that they were. Um, I think that after all of those years of traveling, I could never be the same guy again, by the grace of God, having been exposed to those kinds of contexts where so many of these things that I take for granted were simply not there. Uh, oftentimes I was very perplexed. In fact, many times Andrea, my wife, would pick me up from the airport uh, with the kids, and um, I would be totally and completely quiet and subdued for the most part. I was obviously very happy to see my family, uh, my wife and kiddos, but I was just so impacted by what I had seen uh, on the foreign uh, mission field that it just caused me to have such gratitude that, that what I had in this great country I shouldn't take for granted. But I wondered, and I, and I was often very perplexed at the level of suffering, the degree of suffering in other places of the world. And one thing that I think more than anything else I, I think I took for granted was justice. The issue of justice in America. You know, here in America, um, someone commits a crime and we have uh, America's most wanted, right? For years and years and decades and other kinds of organizations that basically pursue criminals to accomplish justice. And even though justice does not always happen uh, to the degree that we'd like for it to happen in America, there's a court system in place that at least tries to ensure that there's justice. Of course, we know that in America, things are quickly spiraling downward, right? Justice is also quickly disappearing slowly but surely here in America. But look around all over the world, and it is a lot worse, beloved. Justice simply does not, um, does not appear. It is a lot worse than many, many places. And you wonder, as a believer even, and I would wonder oftentimes, is God even there in a passive kind of way? I wouldn't ever explicitly feel that way. Uh, where is my God? How come, Lord, you're allowing these kinds of things to happen? How come there is no justice? And we know that God, of course, is completely in control. But as we look at our world as well, we might be in danger of being perplexed as well and confused about where is God? And we may have questions such as, if God is who the Bible says he is, then why is the world in such a mess? We may ask questions like that as we look at the world around us. Or why does God allow suffering and pain and disease and murder and war if he's indeed all-powerful and good? How do you reconcile the God of the Bible with the history of the world? How do you do that? We may be left in perplexity in our own life and wonder where God is in all of this. You know, and we're not alone. That was the, the prophet Habakkuk. Who was, who was a man who was perplexed and, and wondering as well, where was God in the midst of everything that was going on around him? Habakkuk ministered during the time of the, the, southern, the, the northern and southern kingdom had split, and he was specifically writing to the southern kingdom, Judah, during a time of great injustice. And not injustice, just that there were other nations exploiting Judah, the southern kingdom, but in the fact that he was looking around and that and Judah... God's own people, the southern kingdom, was wicked under the reign of King Jehoiakim. They were idol worshippers, God's own people, rebellious, oppressive. And more than anything else, they were an unjust society. God, who had, who had called them out to be His specially chosen nation, not because they were worthy, but because of His grace, wanted them to practice justice in accordance with His own character. And they failed to do that. These were God's own people. God's own people. And so Habakkuk wondered, does God not see this? Lord, what do you think about all of this wickedness that your own people, Judah, the southern kingdom, is performing? Do you not care? And there were two great perplexities of Habakkuk that we see. First of all, the first perplexity is in verses 2 through 4. This is just by way of introduction. Look at Look at verse 2 of chapter 1 of Habakkuk, and Habakkuk crying out to God regarding Judah, the southern kingdom. He says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is, up, is ignored and justice is never upheld. 
For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Habakkuk is perplexed. He's confused. Judah was living in sin and rebellion, and Habakkuk could not understand why God seemingly was allowing his own people to behave this way. And so he was asking essentially the question, is God just? Is he just? Of course, God answers in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1. And God tells Habakkuk, no Habakkuk, Judah, my people, are not going to get away with their sin. In fact, I'm going to judge their wickedness. And he tells Habakkuk that he would surely judge Judah for their sin and rebellion, but he's going to do it by using the wicked Chaldeans or Babylonians who would come down and crush Judah. It wasn't going to get any better for Judah, but worse. And we know that that happened. Babylon, just a few years after Habakkuk is writing here, and this is recorded, we know that Babylonia sacks Judah in 605 BC, 598, 586, three successive attacks and conquers and takes captive Judah. So God surely judged his people Judah at the hand, by the hand of the Babylonians. Habakkuk is even more perplexed now in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1. And now he's got a second problem. Habakkuk recognizes that Judah would not ultimately be wiped out, but as he ponders God's divine character, he struggles now with God's decision to use a people, the Babylonians, more unrighteous, more wicked than Judah to perform justice. Now Habakkuk is still wrestling and is still perplexed, and God answers him again, and essentially in chapter 2, he rebukes Habakkuk for his lack of faith in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, and assures him that he will also punish the Babylonians too for their wickedness, for their pride, their greed, their idolatry, their rebellion, their oppression and injustice toward other nations, including Judah. And then God pronounces a series of woes upon Babylon. So God answers Habakkuk's second perplexity and confusion about using the Babylonians and people more wicked to punish Judah by saying, I'm going to punish them too, Habakkuk. I am a just judge. I am not going to allow them to get away with sin. And then the book ends with a beautiful song of praise and petition from the heart of Habakkuk. God is the great warrior who fights for his people and will ultimately lead his people to salvation, according to chapter 3 and the, and the, the, the rest of the reflections of Habakkuk. So that is the flow of the book of Habakkuk. And as we look at this book, just by way of, of a, just a topical study, beloved, there are some, some lessons from the life of Habakkuk that I think are helpful for us in our Christian journey and as we look at the culture around us, here in America and around the world and how things are taking place. How did God take a man like Habakkuk from from focusing upon his circumstances, difficult circumstances, wondering about the wickedness around him, from his own human reasoning and, and calculations, how did he take this man, God take Habakkuk, to the point of, bringing them to humble faith. How did he do that? There are some principles, I think, that apply to us. When we experience doubt and perplexity in God, as Habakkuk does here, so that we may be people of faith. Habakkuk was a man just like you and I, was he not? A man, flesh and blood, just like you and I, who was confused and perplexed and doubting God as he saw the degree of wickedness around him. He wrestled with what was going on. And yet, in a time of great uncertainty and seeming injustice, he was a man of great faith in his God. So in the midst of corruption and wickedness and suffering and injustice, how did Habakkuk respond and what did God teach him? There are some wonderful principles here, three, namely, three crucial principles that you and I must apply when experiencing doubt and perplexity in God so that you and I may be people of faith, beloved, in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation as well, which is what we are beholding right now around us here in America and then as we're exposed to things out in the world, okay? First of all, I want you to see that as Habakkuk is in the midst of confusion and doubt, He was a man who stood secure in the character of God. 
You and I, if we're going to be people of faith, we must stand secure in the character of God. How crucial it is to ground our faith and to direct our faith, beloved, upon the one constant of life. Amen? And the only one constant being in life is God Almighty. Everything else is quickly fleeting, movable. Nothing is constant. Nothing is sure. Only God Himself is sure. And as we've seen, Habakkuk cries out to God in chapter 1, verses 2-4, through and says, God, do you not see the wickedness of Judah, the southern kingdom? And God answers him and says, I want to use the dreaded Babylonians to discipline my people. Well, Habakkuk does not understand this either. He doesn't understand this either. But in the midst of hearing God's response concerning his punishing of Judah by the Babylonians, he affirms God's character in chapter 1 and verse 12. He affirms some things about the character of God. There is nothing more comforting in the midst of perplexity and confusion, beloved, than to remember who God is. And look at what Habakkuk says in chapter 1 and verse 12. After God tells him, look, Habakkuk, I'm going to use the Babylonians to punish my people. They're not going to get away with sin. And in the midst of still his perplexity and confusion, Habakkuk affirms some things about the character of God in verse 12. Notice what he says. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, Lord, have appointed them, the Babylonians, to judge. And you, O rock, have established them to correct. Notice verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? And he continues on by talking about the wickedness of the Babylonians in verses 14 through 16. You can see that that Habakkuk is in the midst of perplexity and confusion, but yet he's still a man of faith because in verses, verse 12, in light of God's informing him that he's going to use the Babylonians to punish Judah, he still affirms some things about the character of God, the attributes of God. That help him to to realize that God is very much in control of everything that is going on. Notice, in verse 12, he affirms the fact that God is everlasting. God is everlasting. That God is outside of the flux of, of history. God was around before this all started. Before this wickedness around him, around Habakkuk, that seems so despairing, God has always been. He's not subject to history. He appoints and establishes history, in fact. He has always been. Habakkuk seems to find security in he who transcends history and time. We who are finite on this earth and are subject to time and history may despair, beloved. But God, who has always been, is not subjected to time or the circumstances of history. It was true then in the time of Habakkuk, and it is true today in America. God has always been. He's completely in control. He is everlasting. Notice also that he calls God Lord. Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D which is the personal name of God. It's Yahweh, the great I Am. And he's referring to Him this way because that name, Yahweh, points to the eternal self-existing One, the One who is unchanging, the great I Am who has no beginning and who has no end, who depends on no one for His existence. He is the One who is sufficient in Himself. He depends on no one. Beautiful affirmation. And then he calls God his, my holy one. My holy one. He says, oh Lord, my God, my holy one. He is precious to, to God is precious to Habakkuk. He personalizes. This is a, a personal God with whom Habakkuk has a relationship. In the midst of all of his wickedness, how comforting it is to know for those who have faith in Jesus Christ and for Habakkuk, he had faith in God and in the promises of God. He was a believer in the Old Testament, uh, 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 in the Old Testament. He put his faith and his trust in a personal God who was close to him. My God, my Holy One. Notice he calls him my Holy One. The one who is set apart. 
The holiness of God means first and foremost that there is no one like God. He is set apart in all of His attributes. He is incomparable. No one is like God. That's what His holiness refers to, that He is unique. No one compares to God in His infinite perfections. doesn't even come close. But the fact that God is holy also points to His purity and His, his righteous character. The fact that, he, that God is without sin. He is morally perfect. He has no moral defect. There is no unrighteousness in Him. Listen, if God is holy, if this is who God is, then Habakkuk is assured that the wickedness around him will not go unnoticed by God Almighty. In fact, he affirms this in verse 13, does he not? Your eyes are too pure to approve evil or to look upon evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. See, Habakkuk is affirming the fact that God cannot possibly, in light of the fact that He's holy, He's morally perfect, He will approve what is going on around Him. He will not. That's why He's wrestling here. Because God is holy. He also talks about God's sovereignty here. Notice in verse 12, We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them, the Babylonians, to judge In other words, you have done this, and you, O rock, have established them to correct. That those terms there or phrases, you have appointed or you have established them to correct, point to God's absolute control and sovereignty over everything that is going on around Habakkuk's society. God is sovereign. He's absolutely in control. He is in power, authority. Nothing escapes his notice. He is the absolute ruler who sits on his throne. Everything is subject to God's authority. And as such, Habakkuk affirms that God has ordained the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to correct as mighty as they may be, according to verses 11 through 15 of chapter 1. As mighty as these people may be, they are simply doing that which God has appointed them to do. It is God's choice. He will use the Babylonians to discipline his people. He has not been surprised by any of this. He is absolutely sovereign. And he is the rock, verse 12. He is the rock. That term just, that title just points to God's omnipotence. The rock highlights God's firmness, his unbreakable character, in that he is the sure foundation, the immovable foundation. He's the unchanging one. He's the one who does not waver as human beings do. He is the rock. He's the sure foundation. Listen, although circumstances come and go, kingdoms come and go, God is the almighty, immovable, unchanging rock, beloved. That's who He is. Habakkuk is affirming the almighty nature of God in whom He finds His protection and refuge. God is His rock, His ever-present help in time of trouble in the words of the psalmist. And he affirms also God's justice in verses 13 through 17. I wish we had more time to look at that. But his justice, which, which flows from his holiness. In verses 13 through 17, it is as if, as if Habakkuk is saying, God, I know you surely you are not going to allow these wicked Babylonians to get away with their wickedness. He's only saying those things and speaking to God this way because he knows that God is just and he will deal with sin. And indeed he did, did he not? He dealt with sin. So, so Habakkuk, in the midst of his perplexity and everything he's, he's seen around him, affirms the faithfulness of God. Affirms the fact that God is everlasting, that He's holy, that He's sovereign, that He's the rock, the omnipotent, sure foundation, that He's just and He will deal with sin. Beloved, listen. 2,700 years later, this is still our God, beloved. This is still the God that we worship. The everlasting, faithful one, holy one, sovereign, omnipotent rock who is just, who is holy, who will deal with sin. And he will deal with sin in America and around the world as well. He will do that. This is our God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is one of the reasons why I love some of you older saints in this body. 
who've been walking with the Lord way more years than I've been walking with the Lord. And I've met some amazing godly older saints over the years who have encouraged me over the years. Do you know your God, Kempis? Both in their speaking and in the way that they live their life. When I speak as if I am doubting and I don't know what's going on around me in my own circumstances, it's been those, those older godly saints who have reminded me of the fact that I must stand secure in the unchanging character of my God. That He's worthy to be trusted. And you can speak that way as a believer because you've lived your life and you've experienced the character of God, that His character is trustworthy and unchanging. Amen? We've all known that. See, our problem, beloved, is that many times, especially when difficulties come, we live, I've told you this before, and it's always an exhortation to me, we live like practical atheists. We claim to believe in God, we claim that we're Bible-believing Christians, but remember, remember, remember who the Bible points to. The Bible reveals an infinite, majestic, glorious God who is worthy to be trusted by you and I. Amen? He's worthy to be trusted, beloved. When filled with perplexity, step back. Read God's Word and be reminded of who God is. What you know to be true about the character of God and stand firm upon His awesome character, not the changing circumstances or culture around you. Remember His majesty and His glory as revealed in Scripture. Beloved, don't just go through the motions when you read the Bible and, and you just simply clock in and clock out in your devotions. Ask yourself when you read the Word of God, what is this narrative or text of Scripture telling me about God? What is this text telling me about the character of my God? And what does it reveal to me about my own attitude toward my God? Maybe an improper or sinful perspective I have concerning God. A different God, little g, that I've created by my own imagination or creation, rather than affirming the the God of the Scriptures, you see. Ask yourself, when you read the Word of God, how might I stand secure in the character of my Almighty God? See, we so quickly forget about God and who He is. So quickly. I love the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Um, A series of sermons is Deuteronomy by, by Moses exhorting the Israelites concerning the the great acts of God and who He is and all of His glory and how He's delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians in the Exodus. And Moses is reminding them in sermon after sermon after sermon, this is who God is. Remember, 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 remember. Why is Moses doing that in Deuteronomy? Because human beings are prone to forget about who God is and what He's done. We forget so quickly, beloved. So remember the character of God. David in the Psalms and others in the Psalms, though they were perplexed often and afflicted, always concluded by acknowledging trust in God. Always did. Look at, study through the Psalms. Real people. Primarily David struggling with real life issues. Authentic walking with God. In the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, in the midst of him being pursued, what did he constantly at the end, however, when afflicted and perplexed, come to conclusion in those Psalms? He came to realize who God was. He was reaffirmed in the character of God and he trusted, directed his trust toward God. What about your own Christian journey? When things are hard and you're perplexed and confused, Do you go to Scripture to be reminded of who God is, that you may stand secure in His character? Or are you fixated and focused on on the turmoil around our world? The turmoil in our country. The turmoil in your family. The turmoil in your neighborhood. The circumstances that are difficult in life. Beloved, those things are going to continue. The issue is, God wants us to respond well under our trials. And that begins by standing secure in the character of God and affirming who He is from His Word. The man or woman of faith, when experiencing doubt and perplexity in God, first of all, stands secure in the character of God. Secondly, he or she waits patiently for divine understanding. If we're going to be people of faith, secondly, we must wait patiently for divine understanding. 
As I've mentioned in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 1, Habakkuk once again struggles to understand now why God will discipline his own people by using the wicked Babylonians. And he's struggling. How could it be that God will punish my people, Judah, with a people more wicked than the than, than us? How could this be? So his tension or his problem is, why does God seem to grant prosperity and favor to the wicked Babylonians by letting them wipe out his own people? Why does God seem to be granting them prosperity? Why is he allowing them to prevail over the righteous? And so Habakkuk cries out to God, informing God of the wickedness of the Babylonians, almost as if God does not already know that. Notice what Habakkuk says about the Babylonians, trying to point God and say, Lord, look at them. Look at how wicked these people are. Verse 11, Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. The Babylonians trusted in their own strength, in their own might, in their own power. These were people who were proud and arrogant, Habakkuk tells God. Also, in verses 14 through 15, they rejoice in capturing their prey and being oppressive. Notice verse 14. Why have you, this is Habakkuk talking to God, why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. In other words, God, these people are tyrannical. They are oppressive they are attacking helpless people. They are like, like fishermen who gather their subject nations into a, a dragnet. That's what the Babylonians are like. So Habakkuk is perplexed. Why, Lord, are you allowing them to prosper this way? According to verse 16, the Babylonians are, are greedy for spoil and idolatrous. Look at verse 16. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net. Because through these things, their catch is large and their food is plentiful. In other words, the Babylonians trust in their own strength and and power. And they even ascribe honor to their own nets. Figuratively speaking here. As they catch these helpless people and nations. They are people who boast in their own arrogance. Boast in their own arrogance. So Habakkuk has this problem, this tension. Why are you granting them prosperity? And for him, for Habakkuk, God seems seems at least apathetic toward their wickedness. We wonder too, do we not? As we look at the world around us, we wonder, God, why are you allowing people like this, wicked people who oppress the helpless, to prosper? And you seem apathetic to, to people's wickedness. We may sit back like Habakkuk and wonder as well and plead with God and we should in prayer and say, God, do you not see? Do you not see what's going on around us? Why are you allowing these things? You know, with all the freedom going on for the gospel, open doors for the gospel in China, I just heard recently of another mini massacre in that area, China, and then another one in Southeast Asia of Christians. You need to be keeping up with those things, beloved, for the purpose of prayer, because those are your beloved brethren in other countries who are being persecuted. And we may look at these places like China and Southeast Asia and say, oh, God, why are all your people being massacred? And you seem like you don't care. Bring justice upon these people. What about Thailand, where young little girls are exploited and raped and prostituted? What about that, Lord? Why is that happening in Thailand? See, we may look at places like that and wonder, where is God in all of this? What about in our own country where homosexuality is gaining ground and strongholds? Where the sanctity of marriage and human life are going out the window, beloved. Slowly but surely, more and more, we're seeing this wickedness around us. Why are Christians more and more restricted, Lord, in this country to share their faith? Why are we potentially going to lose the opportunity to do that? Is God in control indeed? I think He is. He's absolutely in control. Bringing about persecution and opposition as He always has to His people for the progress of the gospel, beloved, in our life. All the more that we would not grow comfortable and apathetic ourselves to Christ and to his mission on this earth. But we wonder, 
Why do we have power-hungry politicians who, who lie and cheat and promise things they don't really mean to deliver? I mean, pretty soon, the way things are going, we're going to be left having to vote for the lesser of two evil candidates. That's where we're left now. Who are you going to be voting for? The liberal one or the more liberal one? Right? The anti-God one or the more anti-God one? That's where we're at. Well, notice Habakkuk's humble response to his perplexity and his confusion in chapter 2 and verse 1. Notice what he says. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me, meaning God, what he will say to me, and how I may reply when I am reproved. Like a watchman, Habakkuk says that what he's going to do in the midst of his perplexity, and as he looks at the wickedness around him, he says, I trust God so much that I'm going to patiently, attentively, vigilantly wait like a watchman on the tower. He anticipates, by the way, at the end of verse 1, that he will be reproved when it's all said and done. I will be reproved. Habakkuk knows that God, beloved, listen, Habakkuk knows that God is the infinitely wise one who will answer him and straighten him out at the end of the day. He knows that. That no matter what things seem like to Habakkuk, God has an answer for him. And God, in fact, will correct him and reprove him in his lack of faith and trust. We learn a great lesson from Habakkuk here. He is a man of faith who, though struggling, seeks the face of God, beloved. He seeks the face of God. See, not only do we tend to forget about who God is, but our problem is that we don't seek God in the midst of our confusion and perplexity. We ponder and think upon our our own reflections and our own human musings and rely upon our own understanding rather than upon the understanding of God and seek out His wisdom and His understanding regarding everything that we see around us. That's our problem. We don't get on our knees and seek His wisdom, His understanding. And when we do, we are simply coming and demanding answers now. Lord, you must answer me now. Otherwise, you're truly not in control. And maybe you're confused or you're sleeping up there. No. God doesn't have to answer us now. He will answer us in His own time. In His own time. And He will not always give us the answers that we expect, that we want. He will give us the answers that He wants, beloved. When He wants Our problem is that we don't get the answers when we want them, so we stop seeking God. We don't know how to wait upon Him. We want answers in the here and in the now. See, I want you to notice something about Habakkuk. He's not a man who has all of his ducks in a row, does he? I mean, you're reading through the book of Habakkuk, and I mean, this man's struggling. Read through the three chapters this week. He's wrestling back and forth and he's affirming God's character, but he's going back and realizing, man, Lord, I still don't get it. And how your dealings with fellow mankind around me. He's wrestling back and forth. He doesn't have all his ducks in a row. But he is a man, beloved, who recognizes that he's not all-knowing and he commits to waiting upon God as a watchman and even God's reproof. He waits for his God. See, oftentimes we fail to realize that God allows the things around us and brings them, brings them to us because He wants us to seek Him, beloved. He wants us to, to patiently, humbly walk in dependence upon Him. He wants us to be still and know that He is God. And when we don't seek Him, our hearts are exposed. Our lack of dependence and trust in God, our lack of dependence upon Him for divine understanding is exposed. Listen to me, the prayerless believer, the prayerless believer who does not see God is arrogant and proud. And that is the first and foremost sin that we need to confess if we have a lack of faith, that we're proud and and arrogant, beloved, that we lean upon our own wisdom, our own philosophy of life, our own human calculations and evaluations of why things are happening as they are. In contrast, what God wants us to do is to seek Him and anticipate that He will surely answer. 
You know, people ask. People ask, does prayer change things? Does prayer change things? I would say this. Prayer certainly changes things from the human perspective. But more importantly, I think the issue is, in prayer, God changes us. Amen? God changes us. He changes our perspective so that we would walk in dependence upon Him. Listen, people who pray are not super Christians or Christians who don't struggle or people who have all their ducks in a row, beloved. People who pray are people who recognize their need for God, who recognize their need for His wisdom and His understanding. We come to God in prayer because we want Him to align us to His will, to make us more dependent people, to grant us His perspective concerning everything going on around us. In prayer, beloved, our wills are realigned to His will, so we must be people who seek God for divine understanding and be prayer warriors, beloved. Prayer warriors. If we're going to be people of faith, and we're perplexed and doubting God as we look at the world around us, let us be people who stand secure in the character of God. Let us be people who who wait patiently for divine understanding. Seek His face, beloved, no matter how difficult things seem around you. But thirdly, we must commit ourselves to take God at His word. Commit yourself to taking God at His word. Notice, God has not overlooked sin. According to chapter 2 and verses 2 through 3, God gives Habakkuk a sure promise concerning the Babylonians as well. This is a sure promise that he gives him. Notice chapter 2 and verse 2. Then the Lord answered me. Did God answer Habakkuk who waited patiently for God? Yes. The Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. God answers Habakkuk and tells him, record a vision. And that vision is specifically that God, who is just, will indeed judge Babylon. And beloved, he did. The Persians, some hundred years later, attacked Babylon, and took over that kingdom as well. He judged Babylon. So God tells him, record this vision, this word that I'm going to give you is sure it will come to pass. It is only a matter of when this will happen. And indeed, God did that. God did that. God's lesson for Habakkuk concerning Babylon is that he will not ever allow sin to go unpunished. He is a just judge who will punish sin, beloved. And he indeed kept his word. And God also had a lesson for Habakkuk. According to chapter 2 and verse 4, the greatest lesson of all for this man, whom God used to write a message to the southern kingdom, God still also used this circumstance and what he saw around him to teach him a lesson specifically about living a life of faith. Notice the great lesson for Habakkuk in chapter 2 and verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Not only was chapter 2 and verse 4 a great lesson for all of God's nation, but God was doing a great work in Habakkuk to teach him some lessons concerning his own faith. That is a, a great text of Scripture, by the way. A great verse, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. I know you've read that verse in other places of the New Testament, right? Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 is quoted in Romans chapter 1 verse 17 in the context of the gospel being the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then there's a, th- this verse is quoted in verse 17 of Romans chapter 1. It is also quoted in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11 and Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. All passages that quote Habakkuk 2.4 in the context of the gospel and living a life that pleases God, which is faith in Christ specifically. The pathway to salvation 
has always, beloved, even here as, as God is directing his attention to Habakkuk, the pathway to salvation has always been by faith. Always by faith. In the Old Testament, it was faith in God and the promises of the coming Messiah that would come. And then in the New Testament, that Messiah was Jesus Christ. And everybody could see Him and behold Him. And He is the object of faith. We are told that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Impossible to please God. Why? Because pride, the opposite of faith, is pride. Pride that exalts self above God. Self above His character and His word. But the righteous discard all self-dependence. The righteous pull, but their full confidence in, in God alone. So in the end, God answered Habakkuk's dilemma here. He answers Habakkuk's dilemma that he would judge. And he pronounces a series of woes in, in chapter 2 upon the Babylonians. Where he will render judgment upon them because of their pride and their love of wine and covetousness. Their desire for conquest and oppression because of their, their sin of shedding blood for personal gain. But God also reminds Habakkuk of the type of person that pleases the Lord. The one righteous one who directs his or her faith toward the one true God of the universe. The righteous will live by faith. How about you, beloved? How about you? When the smoke of confusion and perplexity is all around you, and you cannot see clearly what God is doing, what do you do? How do you respond? Is faith in God the controlling principle of your life? Or is it the opinion of the news? The opinion of unbelievers? The opinion of politicians? Is it worldly wisdom? Your own human calculations and opinions about everything under the sun. Is that what you put your trust in? Human philosophy. What clears perplexity in your life when things are difficult? Is it other things or is it God? Do you take God at His word? Do you look upon the pages of Scripture? Do you look at Romans 1, chapter uh, verses 18 and following that speak about the wrath of God presently being revealed in this world and you allow that to temper the fact that you perhaps may be wavering in your own faith? And are you driven to realize that God is absolutely in control and that we need to be focused on the progress of the gospel on this earth all the more, beloved, in light of what we see around us? Do you look at His Word? For Habakkuk, his perplexity and confusion was solved to some extent, not because he understood everything. Not because he understood everything. Mark that. When you read through the book of Habakkuk, it isn't that you get this sense that Habakkuk understands 100% now of everything that God is doing. No. See, we tend to, we tend to have a tendency to think of mature Christians as, as people who know a lot, who have it all together. And that's simply not the case, beloved. Knowledge of God is only the beginning. It is an utterly necessary beginning. Without a knowledge of God, no growth will ultimately take place in your life. But we must also take that which we know about God, beloved, and trust God and take Him at His word. Believe in Him. Believe in what He's saying concerning the world around us. And learn to trust in Him. The Christian who trusts God is the Christian who truly knows his or her God. It must flesh itself out in the way that we respond to things, beloved. Habakkuk could say that no matter what happened, he could rejoice in his God, the God of his salvation. Notice chapter 3 and verse 2, what he says. These are Habakkuk's reflections after God revealing to him the things that he was doing around him. He says in chapter 3, this is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. I can't even pronounce that well. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy, he says. See, he says, Lord... I want to be a man who fears you. 
This has all, essentially what he's saying is, this has all caused me to know you all the more. It's kind of the Job response at the end of the book of Job. When Job responds in the midst of everything that he's gone through, and he says, oh Lord, before I heard about you, now I see you. I understand you more clearly and your dealings and your character. Which is what the function that our trials and our sufferings around us should have, beloved. That we should know God all the more, that we should fear Him. See, Habakkuk's circumstances caused him to shake, but his relationship to God was absolutely unshakable. And he knew that the same God, according to chapter 3, verse 2, who is worthy to be feared, is also a God who is merciful, is he not? He's a God who is merciful. May I remind us, as Habakkuk comes to realize at the end of this letter, God has not disappeared, beloved. God has not disappeared. He is always there. He is always there. He is sovereign. He is absolutely in authority and in control over everything. He's eternal. He has no beginning, no end. He's not subject to everything that's going on around us in human history. He is holy. He is perfectly pure and demands purity and holiness from His people. No one compares to Almighty God. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He is just. He will execute justice and punish wickedness. Rest assured that He will do that. You and I don't need to seek vindication with our own hands. Our Almighty God will do that. Because He's holy and just. He's faithful. He keeps His Word. So trust Him. Take Him at His Word. Even when things seem so hopeless. The problem is that we don't take Him at His Word and trust Him, beloved. We're controlled and overwhelmed by so many of our circumstances. We cry out, injustice, injustice, God. Do something about it, God. Now, in my timing, and in my way, according to my methods, and God will tell us, no, I will answer you, and I will do what I'm going to do for my sake, in my time, and how I wish to do it. God is not subject, beloved, to our own human concoctions and calculations. His ways are higher than our ways. He's infinitely wise and we are not. He is omniscient. He knows everything and we don't. He's got no limitations concerning knowledge. He's able to carry out everything He plans to do. We cannot because He's omnipotent, all-powerful, and we are not, beloved. We are not. And finally, he is merciful and he's compassionate, is he not? That's what Habakkuk says in chapter 3 and verse 2. He, in wrath, remember mercy. He's a merciful and compassionate God. Although we fail time and time again to trust him and to obey him, he always shows mercy. And at that time, Habakkuk came to grips with God's coming judgment against Judah and Babylon. But Habakkuk also remembered that God is always there ready to show mercy according to chapter 3. And that's what he does in chapter 3. He affirms the ultimate salvation of God. Look at the beautiful words of Habakkuk in chapter 3 and verse 16 and what he says. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. In other words, as he considers the prospect of the immediate future and Judah coming under judgment and attacked by Babylon and then Babylon being run over, as he considers that, he says, My inward parts trembled at the sound, my lips quivered, decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. For the people to arise who will invade us. He's looking and indeed Babylon came in 605 BC, 597 BC, 586 BC. Three successive um, uh, um, uh, attacks by Babylon upon Judah. It happened, beloved. And Habakkuk is saying, "I, I have to wait. I'm trembling in light of what is to come. But listen to what he says in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom... And there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet. And makes me walk on my high places. 
for the choir director on my stringed instruments. See, though God brought, surely brought this justice upon Babylon and Judah, Habakkuk exults in the God of his salvation because he knows that he worships a God of mercy. Amen? A God of grace. Listen, beloved, for we who are Christians, the Bible does not promise us health, wealth, and prosperity in this life according to our own definition of what that means. Certainly, newness of life and the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places. We experience the beginning fruits of those beautiful blessings here on this earth. But health, wealth, prosperity, and the way that people want to define that, God doesn't promise us that. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 says this, For to you, writing to believers, Paul says, For to you it has been granted, this grace gift has been given to you, in other words, not only to, or for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but listen to this, also to suffer for His sake. That is the call of the Christian. Didn't Jesus say in Mark 8, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it? He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. That's a call to suffer, just the way that Jesus did. But it has infinite, infinite reward, beloved. Because our physical, earthly life is but a dot on the timeline of eternity, endless timeline of eternity. We have been called to suffer. So difficulty, affliction, and trials are coming all the more, beloved, and they're guaranteed. However, in the midst of difficulties, we experience God's amazing love as Habakkuk reflects at the end of his letter, the comfort of God, the grace of God, the ultimate hope for us of the, of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as we saw last Sunday morning. We see that in our own life. And though we may not always understand the what and the why of life's difficulties. We can stand secure in who God is, beloved. We can seek Him to understand and have the wisdom to confront the situations of life. And we can learn to trust Him, to take Him him at His Word. Go to His Word and be reminded of the great promises of God. Amen? The great comfort that we can find in Him. Go to Him and take Him at His Word, beloved. He is utterly trustworthy. Utterly trustworthy. For you who are sitting in here and are unbelievers, you have not given your life to Christ. For you who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you cannot have this type of faith in God and please Him. Your first problem is that you have no relationship with God. He is not your Heavenly Father. So you must recognize first and foremost that you are a sinner and an enemy of God, that you cannot save yourself, that salvation comes all by God's grace, Mercy that you and I do not deserve. And that God has made the the perfect provision for the salvation of your souls. God has sent His only begotten Son into the world to pay the penalty for your sins and my sins on the cross, taking upon Himself, Jesus did, the fullness of God's wrath and punishment for your sins upon Himself. But as we saw last week here at Calvary, and we celebrate every single day, we should Jesus rose victoriously, conquering sin and death. And He offers you a free gift of forgiveness for your sins. An opportunity to be reconciled to your Creator. And experience perfect, unhindered fellowship with Him in eternity in His presence. But you must turn from your sins, my friend. You must turn from your sins. And put your faith in the sacrifice of Christ alone. And what is faith? What is faith but the, but the transfer of trust from yourself, of your own works to find favor before God, the transfer of that trust to, the, to trusting in the sacrifice of Christ for your sins as the one who alone is able to save you. He alone is able to do that. Beloved, I trust that we would glean from the example of Habakkuk, who amidst a, a wicked and perverse society around him, the southern kingdom, trusted in God. He was a man who trusted in God because he knew his God's majestic character and he knew that God's word would come to pass and especially his mercy and his compassion. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, though we are 
some 26, 2700 years distant from this letter of Habakkuk. How true the words of this prophet are to our generation, Lord. And the things that you taught him, that the just shall live by faith in you, in your son, in your only provision for salvation for sinners. Help us, Lord, in the midst of this society in which we are living, to not fret or fear persecution or opposition, but to embrace it. To know that you promised that if your son would be persecuted, we who are his followers would be persecuted as well. Help us to be people who do not focus upon our own human calculations, our concoctions of what's going on around us. Help us to look outside of ourselves to your word, which reveals you, the great God, the sovereign one, the eternal one, the holy one, the just one, the omnipotent one, the rock, the fortress, our deliverer, our ever-present help in time of trouble. Help us to rely upon your own character, Lord, which is utterly dependable, unlike anything around us that is movable, that is not constant as you are. Help us to also be people who, Lord, seek you, who come to the throne of grace and seek you for divine understanding, to make sense of that which is going on around us continually. And help us, Lord, to be people as well, who trust in your word, who take you at your word. Help us not to come into your scriptures, your Bible, and merely clock in and out, Lord, without asking ourselves the great question, what does this passage or this text teach me concerning my great God? What sin is exposed in my own heart regarding my lack of trust in you? Help us to be asking ourselves that question, Lord. We ask you all of these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.